There are times in all of our lives when things begin to unravel, when we begin to unravel. The desire to hunker down and wall ourselves in becomes so very strong. Even though we know on the other side of falling apart, there are often new possibilities for a deeper and richer life. What does it take to step through those uninvited doors that show up on the path of life and to boldly walk through? One of these nights on the couch, and I'm starting to feel a sensation like there's someone inside of my brain knocking at the door. My guest today is Rabbi Laura Duhin Kaplan. She's the Director of Interreligious Studies and Professor of Jewish Studies at the Vancouver School of Theology in Vancouver, Canada. She's published several books, including The Infinity Inside You, a deeply wise and accessible book on spiritual practice. She's a teacher, a lover of animals, and a lifelong seeker of wisdom. Welcome, Rabbi Laura. I want to jump right in with a question that I like to ask um, everyone I talk to. And I suspect, uh, it, I know it's a question you've thought about, and I suspect it might even be a question that you will turn on its head, which I'm okay with. But I, I, when I um, say the word spiritual and religious, I want to know um, which one of those resonates for you. Where are, if, if that's a spectrum, where are you? And this is why I think you might just turn it on its head because uh, I'm presenting it like they are black and white, but spiritual and religious, what's that say to you? Thanks. So yeah, this is a great question. I've thought a lot about how I like to use those terms, spiritual and religious and how they relate to each other. They both resonate with me. I think of spirituality often in terms of the concept of the human spirit. So inside of us all of the time, there are feelings and moods and existential questions and yearning for connection with the divine and all kinds of things that often we have to push to the margins of our consciousness to get through the tasks of everyday life, whether they're family tasks or work tasks or problem solving tasks. And for me, time that is set aside to focus on the spiritual or times when the spiritual wells up are times when we really connect with what is spiritual in us and for us. And some of us, access that regularly through spiritual practices that we've learned or developed. And then all of us access that at kind of liminal times, threshold times in life when something really wonderful or sometimes sadly really terrible happens to shake us out of the everyday. So I feel that the spiritual is there all the time, um, but just not always in the forefront of our attention. And so the word religious as a rabbi, um, that must have a bit of resonance for you as well. <laughs> yes, I, in my own mind, have come to think of religion as a social practice. And uh, religions are traditions that develop over time and across places. They're a collaborative project 
They often include rituals that have sort of a core of meaning that change over time and place. Many religious activities are designed to open up the spirit, uh, occasionally to set boundaries around it at difficult times. For example, rituals of grief and mourning that are practiced by religious communities help us through those challenging times of spirit or when things come to us from the spirit world, which is a common way of explaining what it is like to be in connection with ancestors and loved ones we've lost. So I think of religion as this group activity that comes through a tradition often, but not always a cultural tradition. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, religion, my religious tradition, being raised Jewish and still being a very active practitioner and part of a Jewish community, for me, my religious tradition has given me a lot of tools um, to meet and engage with spirituality. Well, and I'm interested too, I mean, just briefly to, um, to talk about this religious tradition that shaped you and, uh, you know, to go back to your, your childhood or your formative years, maybe your teen years. Um, we have this thing in the, in some Christian churches where we, um, reaffirm our faith, we call it confirmation. And often people do it around the time you do a bar mitzvah. Um, and we joke that it's graduation from church, that it's a mark in life when people walk away away um, from their faith for a while. So I'm, I'm interested in what this religious heritage has taught you um, and or how it's shaped you. And in those formative years, uh, did you walk away? Or is, it, uh, is it different than that for you? Well, I don't remember a time when I was not religious in the sense that our parents made sure that my brother and I had a very, very strong religious education. Uh, we went to religious preschool a few hours a week. We went to religious elementary school. We both said after grade nine, please um, parents uh, give us a chance to taste a wider and more complex world of education. We went to religious summer camp, a first day camp, and then a sleepaway camp. Mm -hmm. So religion and Judaism were part of our natural habitat, even though we also lived in a very multicultural city, so we didn't learn only about Judaism. So that's a long-winded way of saying that in some ways the religious tradition is my natural habitat. Did I walk away? Well, when I was more in charge of my own time and choices as a teen, I did not always choose to go to synagogue. Although sometimes I actively did choose to go to synagogue. And I will just do a little aside here for all those people who despair that their teens are not any longer <laughs> wanting to hang around the church or the temple um, or the synagogue or the mosque. I just know as an educator that that is just not how teens relate to religion and it's not where they want to be. They have other ways, so many other ways of relating to their spirituality. As you know, Beth, being <laughs> sort of in the tail end of the process of raising teens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But let me come back to the question of walking away. 
So there's a way in which my parents instilled some habits that never went away. One of them is the practice of Shabbat, the Sabbath, Mm -hmm. making sure that there is a time in the week that is different from whatever it is that you do during the week. And it's not always a time where I say, oh, I'm going to be with God now. It's not always a time where I say, oh, I'm going to pray the traditional liturgy now. Sometimes it's just that I've set aside a morning to take a walk or play with Legos with my young child when my children were young. But there is something about making sure that each week there's a little bit of time out of time is a really important spiritual practice that I did not ever let go. In terms of walking away, I did not experience a time of walking away, but I certainly had a time of great curiosity about other spiritual and religious traditions. So I spent two years in an intensive training in Ayurvedic yoga, where we learned a little bit about yoga in the context of Hindu philosophy and expanding that into a holistic life practice that we were then qualified to teach other people. I'm not qualified anymore. It's so many years (laughs) since I practiced. I became very interested, of course, in Western philosophy and an intellectual approach to spiritual and existential questions. Um, At some point, well, I might as well tell this story. So at this point, I am in my late 30s. I have young children. I am living with my husband, Charles, in the buckle of the Bible Belt in the United States. We are in North Carolina. We're living in a house that's built on the old Billy Graham family farm property. Literally, the city is banks and churches. Um, all life centers around religious organizations, almost all of them Christian. We have a small circle of Jews that we practice kind of do it yourself in our living room, Chabara style Judaism. I had sort of a rhythm of days that after I would put the kids to bed, I would sit just for a little while on the couch with the lights dim and collect myself (laughs) and gather my strength. So I'm sitting there uh, one of these nights on the couch and I'm starting to feel a sensation like there's someone inside of my brain knocking at the door. And I kind of dismiss it. I've meditated before, things come and go. And the next night I'm on the couch and the feeling is back again. So I start to pay attention. And this goes on and it's part of my nightly, I won't even call it meditation, my nightly decompression time. And it goes on for like a month. Wow. So finally, I'm getting a little freaked out and I get the courage to talk to my husband about it. Mm-hmm. My husband at this point is not was not a very spiritual person, at least as he defined himself. So I didn't know if he was the right person to talk to. So I described the sensation to him. And I said, you know, I know that what I need to do 
is a visualization and I need to open the door and find out what it is. But I'm scared because what if it's Jesus? And then I said, I mean, I'm okay if it's Jesus, if that's what it is, that's what it is. But how am I going to explain this to my parents? Mm. And my husband said, usually, he is a psychologist. He said, usually, not always, but usually people receive religious experience mediated by the symbols, right, that they've been educated in, mediated by familiar symbols. So I think you could open up the door without fear. So I, <laughs> in coming nights, I invited the door to open and I invited that presence um, into conversation with me. And it turns out my husband, Charles, was absolutely right. I had much more of an experience of being in conversation with, in communion with something like yud Hey vav Hey, the infinite, um, eternal presence of the divine. Mm. And I actually began to ask it questions. I didn't always get the answers I wanted. For example, where we lived in North Carolina was the intersection of three climate zones. We had severe storms all year round, different storms in each season. Mm. And that year in hurricane season, we had had one severe storm in which eight people died. And I asked God the infinite sense of presence about this saying, you know, I, I understand human caused evil, but why did you set up the world in this way to be so severe? And the answer I got, you know, I wasn't all that familiar with the book of Job then, but it was like almost exactly the same as the answer Job gets when he asks. It was, I will be what I will be. And empty of content as that answer was, it was also comforting. Well, it's interesting to me that you, you know, after the great step of opening to that presence that you say that you asked questions because it I mean I it seems to me that a lot of people think that anyone who has a, a foot in a religious tradition is about answers and, th and the first thing you do when you tap into that sense of infinity that we name God um, is you start asking questions and I, I'm curious about the place that questions have had in your journey and, and wonder if um, maybe that's part of what has allowed you to um, to be so what I would call it relentless in your in your quest. Um, you, you don't seem to be one who's satisfied with um, with answers. <laughs> You're much more oriented to continuing to ask the questions. And, yeah, I don't know if there's a question there, but I think it, you know, I, I'm curious about what, what allows you to do that? You know, did your parents teach you to ask questions or did you trust that holy presence? What, how have you learned to do that? I think there's a few things. One is it's a longstanding Jewish cultural tradition mm. to ask questions. If you take a look at the Hebrew Bible, you'll see there are often two versions of the same story 
right? So multiple voices are there and it's very natural for us when we're studying the Torah, the Tanakh, the Bible, to ask why are these both here? And for a lively discussion of that to be encouraged. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Talmud and the Mishnah, our early texts of law, you'll see there are always different opinions preserved and people asking one another, why on earth do you think that? So it is definitely a cultural tradition. Now, we also have had times in Jewish tradition, particularly times marked by trauma, when people have become more rigid and have said, don't ask questions because I can't even deal with the flood of emotional and spiritual stuff that comes up when I start to question. Hmm. But in the family in which I was raised, questions were encouraged. And we often had very lively discussions about religious and political topics where um, so many opinions were expressed. <laughs> things sometimes got out of hand. So that's a part of it. And also I think I got shaped by my studies in philosophy mm. where right in Western traditions of philosophy, you're never satisfied with an answer and you're taught anytime you get an answer that makes sense to try to make yet another finer distinction and say, but what about this part that wasn't covered? Mm. So I think those are answers. There might be something, you know, you know that is a, a darker and deeper psychological quest having to do with deep-seated family dynamics, but I haven't yet had enough psychotherapy and spiritual direction to uncover exactly what they do. Well, I'm interested that you talk about um, how in seasons, uh, you know, and I think of um, the the 20th century and um, in what happened in in Europe and around the world to to Jewish people, um, how there are times when we close down or not, we're just focusing on survival on coping with what we have uh, and that our ability to ask and trust that we can ask questions is, is a bit diminished. I'm, I'm curious about this, you know, to, to ask a really big question, but this moment in which we are living in the early 21st century in this global world where we know how interconnected we are and yet uh, there is this uh, uh, you know I might be overstating but there are streams of um, fundamentalism on every side of the spectrum and uh, do you sense that there's less of a willingness to ask questions or 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 do you have a better insight into that? Do you, I worry that we're in a season where uh, we're closing in and choosing to um, hunker down in our own um, our own safe uh, tribal places. And um, do you have some wisdom to share on on this moment in time and how we lean into trusting? I don't know if I'm up to claiming any wisdom yet, <laughs> but I will share some thoughts. I think that religion, because it's also a cultural phenomenon and it brings people together in close communities, and especially when we live in large cities or very dispersed rural areas, we really, really are longing for community and we find a lot of that communal identity in religious communities. I think because of that communal aspect, religion is also easily connected with 
nationalist feelings and political movements, which are other ways that we find ourselves part of groups larger than ourselves. And I think some of these nationalistic and political movements are destructive. They may have an ethical core, but they are also easily manipulated by people who um, have enormous amounts of money and very little mm-hmm. ethics. And sometimes because we are so caught up in the feeling of belonging to community, it can become very hard for us to discern um, when we are moving past um, really doing what is spiritually healthy for ourselves and the community, as I defined spirituality earlier in our conversation, it's hard to tell when we're moving out of that and into something that is destructive. And I think one marker of that, that is worth being wary of, but again, it's very hard to see at first when we cross these lines. But one marker of that is when being accepted as a member of a group demands, requires that you don't ask the questions that are arising out of your experience, that's a red flag, so to speak. Um, I'm very curious about all that you have gathered. I want to talk about your spiritual practices because um, you you have a pretty broad definition of what <laughs> what a spiritual practice is. Um, it it seems to me you have managed with your uh, yoga practice, um, what comes from your religious tradition, um, philosophy, you name it. Your love of nature, um, it's it almost seems eclectic from the outside. And I guess I, I want to hear, you know, first of all, what, uh, what qualifies a spiritual practice? Um, and then we might talk about why bother? What's, <laughs> what's it help with? <laughs> Very broadly, I define spiritual practice as whatever turns your attention toward spirit as I broadly defined it for people with a religious identification that might have to do with relationship with the divine. For people with a less religious orientation or without one at all, it might have more to do with connections with other people, connections with other species on the planet, psychological investigations. I don't see those as two completely distinct Mm -hmm. approaches. I think they are connected. My own spiritual practices, I'll talk about that. And then if we want to get into Mm -hmm. theoretical, more theoretical, we can. Again, one of my most core spiritual practices is to set aside time for Shabbat. Because if you don't set aside time for something like spiritual practice, then you will never do any. So that's the most enduring one. And I do it with my family. Right now, during the pandemic, I'm living with my husband and one of our young adult children. And so we see each other Mm 24-7. We eat together regularly. We talk about whatever is on our minds regularly. And yet when Friday evening, the designated Jewish time for the pause comes around, we change our rhythm. 
Mm. Um, we eat in several courses. We prepare some appetizers and we open up a bottle of wine. Friday night is really the only time that we um, share any alcohol during this um, pandemic time. So we open up a bottle of wine, we make some appetizers, we sit around and we talk. We start with everyday things and eventually we talk about things that are not so everyday. After that, we set the table with a tablecloth. We cook a very simple meal. It's not any fancier than our weekday meals, but we set aside the table as a sacred space. Then we do the traditional ritual, which um, has uses symbols that are familiar in multiple religious traditions. We light candles. We say a blessing over the meal. We say a blessing over a glass of wine. When we light the candles, uh, not only do we sing together, but we set aside time to pray for healing for all those who have been on our hearts that week. And then we have our meal and we linger over it in a way that we don't during the week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I may have a fairly traditional Shabbat practice for the next 25 hours. My son certainly does not. <laughs> um, but we set aside that time to really let go and be together as a family and experience a kind of cosmic love between us that sometimes we don't linger on during the week. And I consider that a spiritual practice because we invite another presence into our home and to our table. Maybe we experience it between ourselves as a deeper kind of love and bond. Mm -hmm. Some people would say that is allowing, you know, God as love to be in our presence. So that's a really key one. Mm -hmm. And I've got others. One key one, I wish I could say I do this every day, but let's say I have time for three times a week. I will go into a quiet corner of the house, usually my bedroom, but not always, if that part of the house is noisy. And I will pause for a few minutes. I usually start with some yoga postures because for me to be doing something with my body as I am centering myself is just really helpful. Just sitting down and saying, now self calm is not always easy for me. And with the postures, I'll slow my breathing. I will let go of stray thoughts because I will focus on particular parts of my body and the energies in them or the sensations in them. And after a few moments of yoga postures, then I'm able to sit down and do some kind of contemplation. Sometimes I will take a prayer from Jewish liturgy and read it very slowly and quietly to myself, breathing between the phrases and see how they speak to me. Sometimes I will pick something from a Catholic tradition and I will use the daily examine app on my phone <laughs> and let um, a Benedictine guide guide me through some kind of reflection. I have right, some visualizations that I've drawn from yoga tradition um, or breathing techniques, but I will take this time. And it doesn't always happen 
But sometimes during this time, no matter what form I've used, sometimes during this time, I will feel that the Yudhe-Vavhe presence has joined me in the room and I can feel myself expanding beyond the boundaries of my own self or meditation in a much larger way. And those are cherished fruits of the practice time. But even if I don't get those fruits, I still have centered myself, calmed myself and gathered strength for whatever is ahead. So it's, it's, it's not transactional, if you will. It, you're saying it's worth um, doing the practice, even uh, if you don't get the, the gold standard of uh, spiritual illumination in that moment, uh, I guess what I'm hearing. I really want to touch in on something that you've raised here in these stories. Uh, you talk about opening a bottle of wine on Friday nights, and I, you know, I'm extrapolating from that um, how we treat our bodies matters. I'm hearing you start your spiritual practice some days with yoga postures, uh, which of course attunes us to the breath and the body. Um, I'm wondering if, if you've always known that, if there have been times, if there has been some uh, hard lessons to learn about the importance of uh, our spirits reside in these physical beings. How, you sound like you've uh, figured out that that's important. Have there been times along the way when you've come up against a, a challenge or a wrestling moment and realized this body is sacred. Um, it's part of my spiritual life. I don't know if that, you can go a lot of different directions there. But I, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could give credit to my mother where the credit is due and say that because she was an athlete, I learned a lot about the importance of the body. But I actually had times when I just tossed her wisdom on that aside. And I'm thinking about particularly um, the years when I was trying to raise young children and young teens, work full time and go to school full time. Like living in two different places, North Carolina and Vancouver during those times mm -hmm. where we were far from family Babysitters were not in our budget. And with my spouse and I trying to juggle all of that, his employment as well, mm. just as two people. And if that wasn't draining enough, mm -hmm. I was also in two serious car accidents during that time. I always like to qualify. Mm -hmm. I was not driving. <laughs> it is either of them. It's safe to get into a car with me. But they took their toll on my body. And because I was driving myself so hard and not paying attention to the pain and the increasing limits on my mobility from the untreated injuries. Mm -hmm my energy level got lower and lower and lower. And that began to affect my mental health. There was a morning when my 15 year old son found me on the floor of the kitchen um, in pain, unable to get up by myself. And 
once I realized that, oh, my children are witnessing what I am doing to myself. Mm. That was a wake up call. This was 2010 when my son found me on the floor. Mm. And it's 10 years of a very long, slow process of healing, working primarily with a family doctor, um, some psychological support, and increasingly making use of the very healing techniques that I studied so I could help other people. (laughs) But I, I learned very much how the physical health is connected to the mental health. Um, which is connected to spiritual health. Certainly in that time, I did not abandon any kind of faith. I felt that God was a partner in healing. Mm. But I learned in a very visceral way that our techniques of spiritual health and wholeness do need to include the body. And this will be in different ways for different people. Some people are in the peak of health and they can run and get their body into that high idle state where they experience a different consciousness. And other people will have very limited mobility and sometimes simply a practice of attention or breathing um, can make a huge difference in their focus. But I think it's very important. Mm-hmm. Well, I read um, one thing you you wrote <laughs> is that there is a portal to the infinite within each one of us, a portal to the infinite. Um, and you talk about maybe you call it soul or or spirit or psyche or imagination. I guess my my question is just, can you tell us more about that portal and maybe um, yeah, how you stay attuned to it, what attention it needs, <laughs> how we lose it when we're adults too, so easily, right? Where does that go? So you can see for me, from one of the stories I told that the language of the portal also comes from my own experience of, you know, having a closed door inside my mind or soul um, that someone or something called to me to open. So for me, it is a bit of a visceral experience. And I agree with you. As children, um, our imagination is very powerful, right? Many children say, come home and say, I spoke to a fairy in the garden. Mm -hmm. And you as a parent are like, okay, this is some kind of metaphor, or you talk to the dragonfly, or whatever, because we no longer have the capacity to have experiences that are easily named. So One of the ways that I try to keep that portal to imagination open, and this is something that um, you alluded to, Beth, that is being aware of the other species who share the planet with us, even in an urban space. There are all different kinds of birds. There are small and sometimes larger mammals Um, There are a gazillion different kinds of insects. There are trees and plants with their own vibrations. Mm. And sometimes I will, if it's a summer day and I can be outdoors and I'm by a patch of green, I will just look at the grass for a while Mm. 
until I start to notice how alive it is with busy little tiny creatures walking around there. And I become aware that there are ways of experiencing the world. There are forms of life, um, ways of living, ways of thinking, feeling, perceiving that are just completely outside of my human experience. They're not so outside of my human experience that I can't learn about them by paying attention to them, observing them carefully, reading or watching videos about what others have learned about them. Uh, but they are different enough that I begin to realize that I need to use my imagination to understand them. And that begins to awaken in me some of the, the wonder and the possibilities that seemed and of course, when I was a young child, but have to be reawakened as an of course, when I'm an adult. Well, I, okay, I just have one or two more questions. Just a couple more. But one I, I wanted to be sure to ask you um, um, about, you know, what I call aha moments. Like I, I would love to, to hear a story you might have of... Um, just, yeah, if, you know, I talk about wisdom, you say you might not want to claim that for yourself yet, but I, um, are there, do you have a story of a, a moment in your life when you've come to a truth or an understanding uh, that you've, you know, wrestled with angels to get to, um, that might give, give our listeners a bit of uh, inspiration to pay attention for those moments too? I have many. Could I just tell two? I would love that. One of them is an interpersonal group dynamics story. And I will tell it in a very short version because I haven't checked in with all the players mm -hmm. about whether it's okay. But one of them has recently passed away due to COVID and so she's very much on my mind and what I learned from the experience is very much on my mind. Mm -hmm. This was at the Vancouver School of Theology where I was teaching a course in our Indigenous Studies summer program mm -hmm. on religious pluralism. I had a class of about 25 students, probably the most diverse group I have ever had. Mm -hmm. People ranged in age from 25 to 85 their level of education was from high school to several postgraduate degrees. Some were urban from outside North America. Some lived in teeny tiny towns on reserve. About one third were indigenous, about one third were Christian, about one third were seeking quite a diverse group. And at the beginning of the week, I told the class a theory about interreligious journeying, that it takes a, a certain shape um, and that we may or may not journey in this shape. Well, on the second day, there was a conflict due to a misinterpretation of something that one of the students said. Mm -hmm. 
And the class actually erupted into a conflict between uh, one of the indigenous students and several of the non-indigenous students who were on a journey with their hybrid spiritual identity. And it was quite painful. And yet to help the class through it, we drew on all of the resources that our school has. I spoke individually with the students most affected. Our director of indigenous studies spoke individually with the students most affected. Uh, we connected some of them with spiritual directors. This was all in the course of a few days. I adjusted what we talked about in class. Um, we all went together as pre-planned to visit a religious place of worship unfamiliar to almost everyone in the class. Mm. And what ended up happening through people going into themselves deeply spiritually, through them having shared experiences that were somewhat, I won't say frightening, but I will say challenging to all of them. And with the commitment that these 25 people had made to go on a journey together, somehow by the last day of that week, the class had become a group again. They led an interreligious, indigenous, uh, settler, Christian, shared worship together that other people came to. And there was a way in which, because we had faith in each other mm -hmm. and in the spirit that was guiding us through the journey, we got through it. And this was a huge aha moment for me, even as someone who had been teaching and facilitating groups for, um, at that point, I don't know, 25, almost 30 years, although not in this particular cultural context with this particular diverse group. And being part of a larger world that is so fractured across the lines that erupted in the class, there was something magical that happened when a group commits to a journey of listening together in a space that they have declared sacred across traditions. Mm -hmm. And it was not that I didn't know about this, but it was that when we made the commitment, the speed at which it was possible to journey together. It's not always possible this fast, but this was an aha for me about what is possible in healing the rifts and divisions between people. Wow. Mm. Yeah, well, and, and such a lesson for all of life, right? That um, I think we, we start to think that uh, things never change, things can't shift quickly. And to learn so practically um, the speed with which uh, we can go deeper and be bigger than we imagined or <laughs> better or more open or more humble um, 
in that key piece of a, a, a container that holds us that uh, uh, showing up with that commitment. Wow. Wow. And, uh, there is a, I don't know if book is the right word. It is a book, but it's also a resource that my colleague Ray Aldred and I produced for the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. I shouldn't say we produced it. We brought together writers to talk about reconciliation from a multi-faith perspective. Mm -hmm. And one of the authors, um, an indigenous author, a Cree woman named Susie McPherson Durendi wrote about the power of a circle. What happens when people commit mm -hmm. to coming together in a circle and bit by bit, they allow the parts of themselves that they had closed off Right, exactly what I am talking about, about the spirit that lives past the edges of our consciousness. When people allow that bit by bit to come into the circle, what amazing things can happen. Thank you for that. And it goes back for me to the story you shared early in our conversation of your decompression on the coach in North Carolina um, and how, um, again, it's that, uh, that orientation, that predisposition to being open, um, whether that's in our own personal spiritual practice or in our spiritual journey in circle, that's where the, the beautiful stuff starts to happen. That's where um, that, that place within uh, becomes open to the greater um, universe that connects us all. Yeah, and um, I just want to yep. add mm -hmm. not to pretend that bringing us together spiritually <laughs> solves all economic right, and political and interpersonal problems, but it does bring people to a place where they are willing to work together on them. Yes. Um... And then we could spend another hour talking about how, how our spiritual lives trans, uh, translates into our political action, into our um, seeking of justice in the world. And um, I, I mean, I guess I hear you saying any spiritual journey is not an end in itself. It's not um, so that I might reach personal enlightenment. It's, it's to bring me back into engagement with this, uh, this world in which we, we live. Yes, and maybe that's another reason why that particular journey I described is an aha for me, because it's something that I like to be reminded of over and over again. Thank you for this time and for sharing. Is there any last thing you had wished to share that I forgot to ask you about? <laughs> Thank you, Beth. I don't know if I need to add anything. I, I just really appreciate your time and, and I'll keep calling it wisdom um, because I think what you do bring is, is uh, the heart of a, of a seeker and a learner. Um, and, and I am so grateful for the connection with you and for you sharing a bit of your, your heart this day. Thanks, Rabbi Laura.